Hey everyone, this is the second half of last night's Sunday Night Story Time, the Ballad of Seku Odinga. If you haven't heard that first half, I recommend going back and listening to it first because it is all one story. Part one left off with the destruction of the Black Liberation Army in 1973 by the combined forces of the FBI and the NYPD. Most of the serious BLA soldiers at this point were dead or serving long-term prison sentences. The radical underground collapsed in the pivotal year of 1973 after it jumped the shark, you might say, with the insane saga of Patty Hearst and the Symbionese Liberation Army. All of the soft and medium-core radicals kind of crept back to graduate school and tried to get on with their lives or into niche movements, feminism, environmentalism, things like that. And what remained was a hardcore of underground revolutionaries who were ready for violence. Too ready, really, because so many of the people who were still involved in the radical underground at this late date, you know, after all the sane people had trickled back into society, Uh, the people that remained were very frequently mentally unbalanced and addicted to drugs. In 1977, though, one of the hardest revolutionaries of the first wave of violence, our man Seku Odinga, would reemerge after several years being off the grid. So here we go. The Ballad of Seku Odinga, Part 2. The Family The Pan-Radical Alliance, 1977 to 1979. By 1977, the age of the urban guerrilla appeared all but over. The Symbionese Liberation Army was a dim memory, Patty Hearst now languishing in prison. The weather underground was no more. Only the Puerto Rican nationalist group, the FALN, and the New World Liberation Front on the West Coast as well as the little-noticed bombing groups in New England and Washington State, soldiered on. Not that anyone in middle America much cared about the odd midnight explosion in Seattle or Boston, or especially New York City. This was 1977. New York was a ruin. Things were always blowing up in New York. What America wanted was to forget that all of this had ever happened. The 60s, The demonstrations, the riots, Vietnam, Nixon, Watergate, Hoover, the bombings, every bit of it. What Americans wanted most was to dance to the throbbing new beat of disco and, if so inclined, snort the occasional line of cocaine and have a good time. For ten years, the news had all been very, very bad. A new president, Jimmy Carter, had taken office. A new day, a new America was dawning. How significant underground groups remained in this new America was the topic of a rare, if brief, debate prompted by Mark Rudd's Surrender That September. The author of the definitive SDS history, Kirkpatrick Sale, citing the FALN and the NWLF, asserted in a New York Times op-ed that the armed struggle movement was not only still vital, but constituted every bit as dedicated and underground as existed in 1970. 
Sale estimated there were several hundred people still underground. Not that they are exactly a dominant force, he argued, but they are clearly these significant factors in creating social change in the 1970s and seem to be getting stronger every year. This was a reach, and drew scoffs from the Times critic Walter Goodman. Noting Sales' assertion that the bulk of weathermen remained underground, he asked, How many makes a bulk? Four? Seven? Are there really hundreds of terrorists now operating in America, or do they bulk only in Mr. Sales' wishful imagination? The truth, it turned out, was somewhere between the two estimates. Because despite it all, despite the townhouse and the BLA's defeat and the SLA's immolation, and the fact that no one anywhere in America seemed the slightest bit inclined to follow them into bloody revolution, there remained a ragged core of armed radicals who refused to surrender their dreams. Some had been with Weather Underground, a few on the margins of the BLA. By 1977, the most committed had begun gathering in New York, deep amid the ruins of a bombed-out neighborhood in the South Bronx, at perhaps the most unlikely revolutionary incubator one could imagine, an acupuncture clinic. It was called Lincoln Detox. The Bronx had been the middle-class Jewish borough of New York for decades until the 1950s, when its factories began closing and Jewish families fled en masse before a rushing tide of Puerto Ricans and African Americans. The population of the South Bronx, which slumps along the Harlem River across from the northern reaches of Manhattan, went from two-thirds white in 1950 to two-thirds black and Hispanic in 1960. Property values plummeted through the 60s. Landlords often couldn't find buyers when they tried to sell, or even renters, forcing them toward bankruptcy. Scores resorted to stripping and then burning their properties for the insurance money. By the early 1970s, arson had risen to epidemic proportions. By decades end, more than 40% of all the structures in the South Bronx had burned. Out-of-control fires blazed every night for years, creating a perpetual haze over much of the borough. Firefighters couldn't keep up. Entire blocks went up in smoke. Watching flames spread near Yankee Stadium during the 1977 World Series... Howard Cassell famously quipped, The Bronx is burning. Into the ruins of the South Bronx crept predators of every stripe. Drugs were epidemic. Gangs ruled the streets. Those who remained endured unimaginable poverty and anger. Rage, the Times noted in a 1973 series, permeates all facts of life in the South Bronx. In 1970, when the worst was still to come, much of that rage was directed at the area's only public hospital, Lincoln Hospital, on Concord Avenue at East 141st Street. Built in 1898, Lincoln had been condemned in 1949, but plans for its replacement had bogged down over legal challenges from owners of a factory on the proposed new site who refused to relocate. By 1970, Lincoln was a filthy, squalid place, dangerous to doctors and patients alike. The quality of its care was so notoriously poor that locals called it the butcher shop. 
Beyond its walls, venereal disease and infant mortality were rampant. These were the days when just about any community dispute in the streets of New York drew protesters, many of them angry radicals, and outrage over Lincoln Hospital attracted more than its share. Eighty percent of Lincoln's patients were Puerto Rican, and it was an upstart Puerto Rican version of the Black Panthers, the Young Lords, that led demands for change at the hospital. The Lords, a one-time youth gang whose signature action involved burning trash to protest the lack of garbage trucks serving the area, announced their intervention in Lincoln's affairs in July 1970, when dozens of its Purple Berade members burst into the hospital at dawn, barricaded themselves inside the old nursing building, and unfurled a Puerto Rican flag atop it. They presented a list of demands to the hospital's administrators. Resumption of house calls. Doctors were too frightened to go out alone. A daycare center. A 24-hour grievance table manned by community volunteers. Takeover of the hospital by a coalition of local leaders and hospital staffers. And completion of the new facility. When hospital leaders announced that many of the proposals were valid, the young lords left peacefully for the moment. In following days, however, its members were a constant and angry presence in hospital corridors. White doctors and nurses had long avoided Lincoln, and the Lord's main targets were the foreign-born staff members who had taken their place, many of them Korean and Filipino, who now found themselves being cursed as they scurried around to ten patients. The Lord's demanded more Puerto Rican staff members, in response, doctors and nurses resigned in droves. A series of sit-ins and demonstrations stretched on for weeks. The hospital descended into bedlam. Near the height of chaos that November, the young lords returned in force, this time with a crowd of 25 or so drug addicts and others. They took over a sixth-floor auditorium and demanded that administrators let them establish a drug treatment center. Lincoln operated its own small methadone clinic, one of the few in the area, but it was a garden hose spraying the forest fire of Bronx drug addiction. Once again, the wary administration gave in, admitting the need. We should be treating thousands of addicts, its administrator, Ontario Lacotte, told reporters, but we're only treating a hundred. Every day we have to turn away fifteen to twenty addicts who come here seeking help, the Lords simply remained in place, opening a makeshift clinic in the auditorium. Later, they gained office space and nearly $1 million in state and city funding. Thus was born what soon became the South Bronx's largest drug treatment center. Everyone called it Lincoln Detox. From the beginning, it was like no other clinic in New York. Run by radicals who established a socialist collective to administer it, Lincoln Detox drew many of its volunteers and paid staffers from the ranks of New York's militant leftists. They adorned its walls with photos of Che Guevara, Malcolm X, and, in time, Joanne Chesimard. Its volunteers included Michael Chetaweo Tabor and Afini Shakur of the Panther 21, Brian Flanagan from Weather Underground, as well as Bernadine Dorn's sister, Jennifer, who fell for a young lord's leader, Mickey Melendez, with whom she had three children. Practically overnight, Lincoln Detox became a kind of clubhouse for New York's radical elite. 
According to Deruba Moore, when the Black Liberation Army needed medical supplies in 1971, the radicals at Lincoln turned them over by the truckload. But it was the treatment Lincoln Detox offered that was truly radical, in every sense of the word. It was an article of faith among many militants that the plague of drugs was a scheme concocted by a white government to oppress blacks. This theory had been popularized by Malcolm X, who preached that drug addiction could be cured by freeing blacks of the self-hatred indoctrinated by whites. At Lincoln, this meant augmenting methadone with a regimen of political education classes that included Marxist literature and lectures, all paid for with city funding. Every addict was given an 86-page pamphlet called The Opium Trail, Heroin and Imperialism, which claimed, among other eye-opening assertions, that a commitment to armed revolution could cure heroin addiction better than methadone alone. By providing an alternative explanation and another focus for anger, its authors wrote, as well as collective support and some sense of direction, the movement can be the best form of therapy. The directors of traditional clinics rolled their eyes. They got the biggest hunk of garbage put together that a million dollars could buy, one scoffed. Still, Lincoln administrators, many of whom appeared intimidated by detox staffers, tolerated most of it, only occasionally attempting to rein in the radicals, as when one acting director, new to the job, switched off the power when a group of 150 staffers and junkies commandeered the chapel to screen a documentary about a Mozambican revolutionary group. When the detox crowd refused to leave, police and security guards were called, leading to the predictable melee. Twenty-three people were arrested. Among the eager volunteers attracted to Lincoln Detox in those early days was a sharp, young, black radical named Gerald Williams, who would later gain infamy under his adopted Muslim name, Matulu Shakur. Born in Baltimore to a house painter father and a devout Christian mother, she was also blind, Shakur as a teenager had joined one of the edgiest of early black power movements, the Republic of New Africa, RNA. In 1968, the year Shakur signed up, the RNA held a convention in Detroit and proposed carving out a new black homeland from the states of Georgia, Alabama, Louisiana, Mississippi, and South Carolina. The group even elected a provisional government that included Malcolm X's widow. A weaker cousin to the larger and more significant Black Panthers, the RNA eventually crumbled under the onslaught of gunfights and FBI raids. Shakur, only 20 the year Lincoln Detox opened, found a new home at the clinic. Starting as a volunteer, he proved so energetic that he earned a $9,000 a year job as an assistant drug counselor. Staffers remembered him as self-assured, cocky, and arrogant, a streetwise general in search of troops to follow his lead. He seemed to know everyone in radical circles, from Sylvia Berardini to Bernadine Dorn. He steadily gained status at Lincoln, especially after marrying one of the Panther 21, Afini Shakur making him stepfather to her son, the future rapper Tupac Shakur. Matulu Shakur rose further when he became an early convert to a new treatment that debuted at the clinic in 1974, acupuncture. The problem, not that anyone at Detox cared to admit it, 
was that revolutionary politics as a cure for heroin addiction didn't actually work very well. Methadone was still used, but it too had its limits, and after four years, many in the clinic were searching for new remedies. Acupuncture was introduced by a young doctor named Richard Taft, a stringy-haired graduate of the Baylor University Medical School in Houston, whose uncle, Robert A. Taft Jr., was a Republican senator from Ohio. His great-uncle was the 27th president, William Howard Taft. Dr. Taft taught the ancient Chinese art to Shakur and others until, as luck would have it, his dead body was found in a clinic closet in October 1974. No one at Detox publicly acknowledged the ironic fact that the founder of its newest heroin treatment program had died of a heroin overdose himself, a syringe jammed into his arm. Counselors told patients Taft had been killed by the CIA. Still, acupuncture caught on. A practitioner named Mario Wexu arrived to train the staff after Taft's death, demonstrating how acupuncture could be used alongside traditional Western medicine, of which Shakur, for one, was contemptuous. Shakur and three other counselors began taking courses under Wexu through the Acupuncture Association of Quebec, and after a year-long review and a month of clinical training, they earned Doctor of Acupuncture degrees. Shakur came to believe in the full range of acupuncture treatments, arguing that in his hands, precisely placed needles could cure everything from hay fever to diarrhea. Wexu even took him to China to observe the work of traditional acupuncturists. By 1977, when Shakur assumed leadership of Lincoln Detox's acupuncture programs, his sway within the clinic had risen to the point where many staffers referred to him as its deputy director, though he wasn't. Exactly why 26-year-old Matulu Shakur, budding doctor of acupuncture, turned to armed robbery would never be precisely explained. But he and his wife had a child on the way, and a $9,000 salary didn't buy much in New York, even in 1977. Though years removed from his teenage sojourn in the Republic of New Africa, Shakur still saw himself as an ardent black nationalist and revolutionary, and revolutionary ideas filled much of the conversation each day at Lincoln Detox. In 1976, when he began discussing the possibility of some kind of armed action with potential partners in crime, he said he wanted to raise money to give back to the poor blacks of the Bronx. What he didn't say, because this wasn't an effective way to recruit a revolutionary army, was that one reason he wanted more money was to fuel his growing appetite for the drug whose popularity was sweeping the nation, cocaine. The drug counselor was developing a taste for drugs, and $9,000 a year didn't buy much cocaine, then or ever. Whatever his motivation, Shakur's transformation coincided with the arrival in his life of a true revolutionary, a cool, stoic figure all but worshipped by would-be white and black revolutionaries alike. It was time for Sekou Odinga to come in from the cold. When Eldridge Cleaver was thrown out of Algeria in 1972, the Panthers with him scattered. Like Cleaver, Donald Cox found refuge in France. Michael Tabor ended up in Zambia. Only Sekou Odinga, the one Panther whose reputation actually grew despite the Algerian debacle, wanted to continue the struggle where it had begun, 
in the United States. Tall, quiet, and dark-skinned, with a pistol usually jammed into his belt in his role as Cleaver's principal bodyguard. Seku, one visitor said, one visitor to Algiers was quoted years later as saying, is the most amazing of all the Panthers. Odinga drew comparisons to Shaft and other black exploitation heroes of the day. The word used most often was badass. Odinga had long talks with the others before leaving Algiers. They knew what he wanted to do. He was still a wanted fugitive, indicted in the Panther 21 case, and they thought returning to the States was suicidal. But Odinga remained dedicated to Malcolm's words. He still believed in the revolution. He left Algiers in the fall of 1972, drifting through Lebanon, Tanzania, and other African countries. Eventually, in the spring of 1973, he returned to the United States. I flew back, he recalls. It was easy. Security wasn't like it is now. You could use any small airport, go through Mexico or Canada. As luck would have it, he reached New York just a few weeks before the May 1973 shootout in which Asada Shakur, still known as Joanne Chesimard, was captured on the New Jersey Turnpike. He had met with her just weeks before. Everybody was having a tough time, he recalls, but we were underground in a tough time. We were up against the strongest military power in the world, and they were hell-bent on destroying us. Asada and them, they were being hunted. She and Zaid Shakur, they were not expropriators. They had been pushed into doing things they didn't know how to do. At the time, we worked up some plans to do things together. It was very rough, but it was still doable. In fact, it wasn't. From the moment Odinga returned to the United States, it seemed another group of BLA soldiers was killed or captured every month. When the final BLA member, Twyman Myers, was killed in November 1973, Odinga realized he was on his own. I had organized my immediate future with them in mind, but Zaid and them got killed before we were able to do much, he recalls. That really stopped a lot of stuff. Years later, the FBI would allege that Odinga and Matulu Shakur carried out a series of armed robberies during the late 1970s. What they never learned, Odinga says, was that his revolutionary expropriations actually began much earlier, after the BLA's collapse in 1974. Odinga worked with his old friend, Larry Mack, and another black radical he declines to identify. I couldn't even tell you how many there were, he says of the banks this group robbed, at least 10 before 1976. Connecticut, New Jersey, mostly New York. I remember ex-pros in Midtown Manhattan, Long Island, Queens. I went back in twice to one in Queens. When the guard looked up and saw me for a second time, he just made this face and went, oh no, not again. This group fell apart in 1976, Odinga says, after his main partner decided to retire. It was then that he renewed his acquaintance with Matulu Shakur. Odinga, several years older, had known him since Shakur was 13 or 14, Odinga says. He would always come around. He liked my weed. When Shakur approached him about forming an underground group in 1976, Odinga had all but retired from robbing banks. He had apartments in Pittsburgh and New York, and had opened a legitimate business, selling African jewelry with Zaid and Lumumba Shakur's father, 
who purchased their goods on trips to Africa. Odinga and Abba Shakur would drive south from New York, selling to shopkeepers until reaching New Orleans, where they unfolded card tables on a street corner and sold what remained to tourists. At first, Odinga recalls he was skeptical about helping Matulu Shakur rob anything. Matulu's a very good speaker, a good organizer, he recalls, and I think that was what he was cut out to do. The military stuff? That wouldn't work out. So Odinga sat out Shakur's first robbery attempt in late 1976. The target was in Pittsburgh, and while Odinga agreed to let Shakur use his apartment there as a staging area, he declined to take part. Instead, Shakur recruited two friends from the Lincoln Detox crowd, Raymond Oliver and Chewy Ferguson, an Army veteran who had volunteered at Lincoln and now helped run a drug rehabilitation clinic in Brooklyn. Ferguson, who suffered from back spasms, also happened to be one of Shakur's acupuncture patients. So it was on the cold morning of December 6, 1976, that a new underground group came into being. It didn't yet have a name, only a mission. After spending the night at Odinga's apartment, Shakur and his two partners drove their rental car into downtown Pittsburgh and parked a half block from the Mellon Bank. Pistols jammed inside their coats, Shakur and Ferguson took positions outside while Oliver lingered down the block. After ten minutes, a truck from the Cauley Armored Car Service coasted to a stop in front of the bank. Inside the truck was $1.44 million in cash, proceeds from a Kaufman's department store. When the two guards climbed out, Shakur and Ferguson drew their pistols. At that point, the robbery degenerated into black comedy. One of the guards fainted. The other followed orders and spread himself against the outer wall. They were just about to handcuff the two and rifle the truck when Ferguson, who had been suffering from back spasms all morning, was hit by another. For a moment, he lost control of his arms and his gun went off. Before Shakur could do anything, a police car appeared. All three men panicked and ran. Ferguson only made it a few hundred feet before being felled by yet another back spasm. Oliver was tackled by a pair of detectives. Only Shakur escaped. This was hardly the auspicious debut Shakur had hoped for. Afterward, he pestered Odinga to help him, and in time, Odinga relented. To a point. The idea was, we would each recruit four to nine or whatever crew members who would help do things, and from time to time, we would do things together, Odinga recalls. Each began with a single recruit. Odinga brought in Larry Mack, his old bank-robbing pal. Shakur recruited 30-year-old Tyrone Risen, a one-time member of the Republic of New Africa. A Vietnam vet who never lost his zeal for gunplay, Risen was a small man, 5'9", earning him the nickname Little Brother, sometimes shortened to LB. Risen led an unremarkable life. He had a wife and children, lived in Queens' Rockaway neighborhood, and worked as a physical therapist. Still, hungry for action and wholly in agreement with Shakur's revolutionary patter, he eagerly signed up for the group's first expropriation. It came, of all places, at a meatpacking plant called the House O'Weenies on East 138th Street in the Bronx, three blocks south of Lincoln Hospital. On May 26, 1977, 
Odinga and Ryzen barged into the plant's business office, fired a few shots in the air, and demanded and received an armload of cash. Then they dashed away, spilling bills behind them. Shakur, at Odinga's insistence, waited in the getaway car. It was a start. For their next action, Odinga identified a Citibank branch in the Westchester County suburb of Mount Vernon, just across the Bronx border. It cased the bank in detail. On October 9th, Odinga and Mac burst inside, guns drawn, loudly announcing their intentions and ordering customers onto the floor. Running behind the teller cages, they relieved the cash drawers of $13,800. Then Ryzen, who had been waiting outside in a gray getaway van with Shakur, scrambled inside and yelled, Let's go! It was their smoothest job yet. At that point, not much about their crimes was revolutionary. There were no communiques, no money given to the poor, no rhetoric whatsoever, in fact, except what they uttered among themselves. The FBI didn't even know they existed. They were just stick-up men. What transformed Matula Shakur's motley crew of mock revolutionaries from a collection of armed robbers happy to hold up a house of weenies into hardcore felons destined to commit the most outlandish crimes of the era was its incorporation of a small band of white radicals, all fleeing the wreckage of weathermen and affiliated groups, all still ferociously committed to carrying out the struggle, and all but a handful, as it happened, women. This unlikely alliance began with Sylvia Berardini, the squat, prematurely gray radical who had risen from the Panther 21 Defense Committee to spearhead the Asada Shakur Defense Committee, assume a leadership position in the Prairie Fire Organizing Committee, and after forcing its split in late 1976, co-found a new group, the May 19th Communist Organization. May 19th began as a handful of women, no more than 15 by Baraldini's estimate, most of them living in Brooklyn. Several, including the ex-weatherman Judy Clark and Susan Rosenberg, had lingered on the fringes of the underground for years before joining the PFOC. After the split, we went back to New York and we were kind of lost, Beraldini recalls. We had never led organizations before. We were the rank and file. We had never done this. It took time to regroup. Like Clayton Van Lydegraaff and his Bay Area acolytes, a number of the May 19th women felt the seductive lure of the underground. It was Matulu Shakur who made them see what a willing white woman could do for a black militant who couldn't afford to draw attention to himself. Beraldini and Shakur had known each other for years, but in 1977 their relationship began to change. Shakur began by dropping by her apartment late at night, talking revolutionary politics, sometimes taking her for drives. Their discussion always turned to the need to lend a hand to oppressed African Americans. It started out with him asking me for small favors, Beraldini recalls, I rented cars for him. I gave him money. They were little things, nothing really illegal. I perceived it as helping a friend. Everything began to change one night in December 1977. Until that point, Baraldini and the women of the May 19th Communist Organization, while committed to fighting racism and police brutality, hadn't done much of anything. That evening was ostensibly a Kwanzaa party in someone's cramped Brooklyn apartment. 
but the true agenda revolved around a renowned radical the May 19th women had until recently known only by reputation, Marilyn Buck, famous in underground circles as the only white member of the BLA. It wasn't entirely accurate. The BLA didn't have any membership roles. But in 1973, Buck had been convicted in the California federal court of illegally purchasing ammunition for the BLA, purportedly at the behest of Donald Cox, Eldridge Cleaver's aide-de-camp. An attractive brunette, Buck was a Texas minister's daughter who had emerged from SDS's University of Texas chapter. While like-minded peers joined Weatherman, she headed instead to San Francisco, where she fell in with the Black Panthers and, later, the BLA. To hardcore militants who snickered at toilet bombers like Bernadine Dorn, Buck was the genuine item, brave, resourceful, and utterly committed to the cause. One FBI agent called her the white Joanne Chesimard. Marilyn was the queen, recalls Elizabeth Fink, who was at the Kwanzaa party that night. She was the white girl, the white girl of the BLA. The California court sentenced Buck to 10 years and sent her to the federal women's prison in Alderson, West Virginia. In 1977, having served four years, she was granted a furlough and headed to New York, where she bunked with her lawyer, Susan Tipograph, and befriended Beraldini. By the night of the Kwanzaa party, word had spread through the radical women of May 19 that Buck had no intention of returning to prison. I remember the discussion that night. Should Marilyn go back, Beraldini recalls. Marilyn was firm. She wasn't going back. She needed protection. So some of us went along. We agreed to protect her. This was the first time any of us supported someone underground. That meant money, apartments, ID. We did all that for Marilyn. This was a very big deal. It was taking a step into the unknown, the point of no return. And it was one of the biggest mistakes we made. It eventually put the FBI onto us. She only had 18 months left in her sentence. But we couldn't say no. This was Marilyn Buck. We couldn't say no. Beraldini and her friends found Buck an apartment, the first of several she would use in the slums of East Orange, New Jersey. But Buck wanted more. She wanted to rejoin the underground. So Beraldini and Shakur arranged an introduction to the one man they all idolized. Sekou Odinga. After Marilyn walked away from the joint, Odinga recalls, she told people she wanted to get involved with the struggle again. They reached out to people who reached out to me. They met at a hotel in the Washington, D.C. area. We talked for about two or three hours, Odinga continues. She wanted to plug in. She made that clear. She gave me her history, the things she had done for the BLA, her understanding of the struggle, especially the African struggle. I kind of grilled her. I probably treated her unfairly. Her thing was, use me as you see fit. I was pleased with her answers. She passed. With the emergence of Beraldini and Buck, Odinga and Matulu Shakur saw the potential for bigger and better things. They now had something the BLA hadn't had, an above-ground support network. They called it the White Edge, The group had no official name. Unofficially, some began calling it The Family. As Matula Shakur's band of armed robbers in the Bronx grew in confidence through the early months of 1978, 
The investigations into the FALN were going nowhere. None of the jailed suspects would say a word. Worse, on January 23rd, a judge freed Mar- Maria Cueto and her assistant, Raisa Namikin. In May, several other suspects, including the Chicano activist Pedro Archuleta and the Rosado brothers, were released. They posed on the steps of the federal courthouse, clenched fists raised. The FALN bombings, meanwhile, continued. On January 31st, eight days after Cueto and Namikin went free, two pipe bombs exploded in New York, one in a trash bin outside the Consolidated Edison building, the second beneath a police car five blocks north. No one was hurt. A caller took credit on behalf of the FALN. In the following days, three more unexploded bombs were found, presumably intended to detonate along with the others. One was found by a group of boys in Harlem who who handed it to a passerby, who handed it to a construction worker, who helpfully disassembled it before handing it to a police officer. Three months later came a more ambitious set of attacks. Simultaneous actions in New York, Chicago, and Washington. The date was May 22nd. At 9.40 a.m., a pipe bomb exploded in a trash can in front of the Justice Department in Washington. No one was hurt. Twenty minutes later, tiny ping-pong ball incendiaries burst into flames at shops inside all three major New York-area airports, Newark, LaGuardia, and JFK. An hour later, in Chicago, a caller from the FALN phoned in bomb threats at O'Hare Airport and an adjacent hotel, but no bombs were found. FBI agents in all three cities scrambled to gather evidence in leads, but there was nothing to be learned. The FALN seemed to be able to strike anywhere, at any time, without interference. At the FBI offices on East 69th Street, morale plunged to new lows. Then, after months without progress of any kind, things suddenly changed. It was a hot summer day, July 12, 1978. The call came from Queens. Late that afternoon, in a fetid second-floor apartment on 96th Street in the East Elmhurst section of Queens, the FALN's main bomb maker, Willie Morales, hunched over a workbench building his fourth device of the day, a pipe bomb. It consisted of a single stick of dynamite, wrapped in its original red paper, which Morales carefully slid into a 16-inch length of pipe, finishing the bomb by screwing on a metal cap. He worked alone, drops of sweat rolling down his sides in the heat, the only sounds the salsa music blaring from cars outside. Morales was 28 that day, a small, wiry man with unruly black curls. He liked to be called Guillermo. It had been 18 months since his interview with FBI agents, who had dismissed him as a quiet, passive nobody. Like all his FALN brethren, he was an unlikely revolutionary. Morales had grown up in East Harlem and gone to college, earning a degree in film from the School of Visual Arts in Manhattan. He had worked a smattering of jobs, lab technician at the Department of Health, reading instructor at Public School 96, counselor for the Police Athletic League, lifeguard, and even drug counselor in charge of referring addicts to drug treatment centers. Unlike the others, he wasn't sought by police and thus had never gone underground. For several years, until he'd recently been laid off, 
He was a ticket agent for Transworld Airlines, usually working at its two Penn Plaza office. He had been working in this apartment for three months. Carlos Torres rented it for him. His only furniture was a thin cot by the front window where he slept. It was a Hispanic neighborhood where the pulsing rhythms of salsa and mariachi blared from car radios on those humid summer days. He fit in easily here. No one bothered him. In a rear closet, he kept his materials. Sixty-six sticks of dynamite, containers of black and smokeless gunpowder, plus 60 pounds of potassium chlorate, a chemical used in making explosives. Morales was especially adept at crafting the ping-pong ball incendiaries the FALN liked to leave in Macy's and Gimbel's. He had hundreds of balls. The closet also held two M1 carbines, a 45 caliber semi-automatic rifle, and a sawed-off shotgun. As he worked, Morales kept a homemade bomb-making manual beside him. Its cover was adorned with the words, In This We Trust. Every bomb he made was exactly like its counterpart in the manual. Every single one detonated when the big hand on a wristwatch struck nine, just like the bombs Ron Flegelman built for the Weather Underground. All three of the bombs he had built that day were set to explode, presumably intended to be taken to their locations that evening. No one would ever figure out exactly what went wrong that sweltering day in the apartment on 96th Street. What the FBI ultimately heard, but could never confirm, was that Torres had prepared the timer on the final pipe bomb and had made a mistake. The hour hand on the wristwatches had to be shaved smooth to ensure proper detonation, and Torres, it was said, had whittled the wrong hand, not the hour hand, but the minute hand. Thus, when Morales set the bomb to go off in a matter of hours, he actually had only a matter of minutes. At 5.20, Morales, as Morales was screwing the metal cap onto that last bomb, it exploded in his hands. The boom could be heard up and down the street. The blast blew off most of Morales' hands, sending his severed fingers zinging madly through the apartment. The metal cap he was holding rocketed into his chin, fracturing his jaw in at least five places, knocking out a number of teeth, ripping off his lips, and destroying his left eye. His face was a bloody mess. He must have been unconscious for a time, but if so, he quickly came to. It was at that point, after realizing he was still alive, that Willie Morales did several amazing things. Despite having nine of his fingers blown off, only his left thumb remained intact, and despite having dreadful burns across his face, he still had the strength and presence of mind to gather an armload of FALN documents which he somehow lugged into the bathroom and began trying to flush down the toilet. He left a trail of blood the whole way. When the bathroom door closed behind him, he had to fight to reopen it, as evidenced by the bloody stump marks he left on it. Once the papers were flushed, Morales limped to the apartment door, locked it, then closed and locked each of the windows. Finally, he went to the gas stove, blew out its pilot lights, and cranked the gas up to high, apparently twisting the knob with what remained of his mouth. Police sirens were already filling the air at that point. What Morales wanted, the FBI later surmised, was for the police to force their way into the apartment, 
Maybe an axe or a gun would do it. Maybe the light switch. Whatever it was, he would need only the tiniest spark to ignite the gas spreading through the apartment. He was going to die, Morales suspected. But if so, he would take a dozen cops with him. Firefighters were the first to arrive, stomping up the stairs in their heavy boots. They used an axe to crash through the door. Luckily, nothing produced the spark Morales had hoped it would. Immediately, the firemen smelled the gas and saw the blood. Blood everywhere. Waving their arms to dissipate the gas, they entered the apartment and stepped to the front windows to release it, which is when they found Morales sprawled, barely alive, on his cot. This was no ordinary explosion, the firefighters saw. This was a matter for the police. Detectives from the NYPD's bomb squad were among the next to arrive, walking in as attendants carried Morales on a stretcher to a waiting ambulance. As yet, no one had a clue who he was, nor could they tell at a glance. By the time paramedics began swathing his arms and upper body in bandages, Morales' head had swollen to the size of a basketball. Don Wolford took the call a half hour after the blast. Anytime anything blew up in New York City, the FBI agent got a call. He sent a half dozen agents to Queens, and one, Danny Scott, joined the NYPD's William Valentine at Elm- Elmhurst General Hospital, where they found Morales lying on a gurney wrapped in bandages, a bloody mummy. Valentine had been working FALN bombings for years. Studying the man's size and shape, he grabbed a tape measure and took his measurements. It was only a hunch, Valentine said, but he thought this might be Willie Morales. After a bit, Morales was able to mumble a few words. He told doctors his name was William and gave an address for his next of kin. Agent Scott drove to the address in East Harlem, the same building, he realized, to which he had tailed Puerto Rican activist Dilcia Pagan several times. Inside, he climbed the stairs and knocked on an apartment door. Pagan answered. Scott asked whether William was home. He's out visiting a relative, Pagan said. Why? Are you sure? Yes, I'm sure. Why? Is something wrong? Scott explained about the man in the hospital. We just wanted to be sure it wasn't your William, he said. Pagan turned pale. She said it couldn't be her William, but Scott could see that it was. Later that evening, she appeared at the hospital. Morales was considerably more pleasant to her than he had been to Detective Valentine. Alluding to the bombed-out apartment, Valentine had asked, What happened in there? From beneath his bandages, Morales managed a mumbled reply. Fuck you. Fuck yourself. Valentine just smiled. Fuck me. Fuck yourself. It's you that are fucked, pal, Valentine said. You'll be wiping your ass with your elbows. Back at the apartment, detectives and FBI agents busied themselves snapping photographs and combing through the debris. The bomb squad gingerly wrapped the three remaining pipe bombs in bomb blankets, then drove to a police range in the Bronx and detonated them in a pit. FBI agents fanned out to interview neighbors. All four of the wanted FALN members, Carlos and Haiti Torres, Oscar Lopez and his companion, Lucy Rodriguez, were identified as visitors to the apartment. Late that night, 
as agents and detectives continued studying the apartment on 96th Street. Ping-pong balls burst into flames at Macy's and a Corvette store in Manhattan. The next day, an FALN communique was delivered to the United Press office. It was identical to one found in the apartment. In the following days, as Morales was, was arraigned and indicted on explosives charges, the apartment began to yield an abundance of clues. One of the rifles had been reported stolen by a Chicano activist the FBI had been investigating in Denver. Best of all, the wreckage of Morales' workbench revealed a small copier. It turned out to be the same machine Maria Cueto had purchased for the NCHA in September 1974, four months before the Francis Tavern bombing, and an FBI analysis indicated that it had been used to produce the five-star FALN logo atop the Francis communiques. At their desks on 69th Street, Don Wolford and Lou Vizzi felt that the pieces were finally coming together. They searched Pagan's apartment, found some FALN literature, and had her brought before the grand jury to provide fingerprints and voice samples. Pagan got the subpoena suspended after claiming she was pregnant with Morales' child, as in fact she was. She would give birth the following spring. As the investigation progressed, Morales was shuttled among Kings County Hospital, the Rikers Island Jail, and Bellevue Hospital. Claiming he was a prisoner of war, he refused to say much more than fuck you to detectives. Three radical lawyers took his case, and they peppered a judge with all manner of motions, including a request that Morales be treated according to the Geneva Convention, then turned over to military authorities and removed to a neutral country. They complained incessantly about the quality of his care, saying he had been denied the right to artificial limbs. Hospital officials insisted they planned to make them once he was healthy. Finally, in January 1979, Morales' attorneys filed their most unusual challenge. In a lawsuit, they alleged that police had illegally confiscated his severed fingers. The police had taken the fingers as evidence. Morales complained that they should have been sewed back on. All through 1978, as Matulu Shakur's band of revolutionary bank robbers added new members and ambitions, Shakur's base at Lincoln Detox in the South Bronx came under increasing pressure from city regulators. The trouble had been building for years. The city's Addiction Services Agency, ASA, which nominally ran the clinic, had cut off all funding in 1973 when Detox refused to provide census data or treatment records to justify it. But the clinic still received money from a separate city agency, the Health and Hospitals Corporation, HHC. Thus, one agency, ASA, had oversight but no leverage to enforce it, and a second, HHC, handed over money with little supervision. Neither had the power to rein in the clinic's director, Luis Sarita, who found it easy to strong-arm both agencies, even when improprieties surfaced. And surfaced they did. A 1973 ASA audit found that Detox was treating barely half the number of drug addicts its contract specified. Another noted that its treatments were four times more expensive than those at other city clinics. An HHC review in 1976 found nearly $1 million in unsubstantiated payroll along with phenomenal absentee rates among staff members, as high as 71% in some cases. 
Only half of 45 paid staffers were on duty one day when HHS auditors arrived. The staff, meanwhile, charged the clinics for thousands of dollars of personal phone calls. In 1977, when HHC demanded the clinic's personnel records, it simply refused, claiming the records were private. That December, when a federal grand jury investigating kickback schemes subpoenaed records on 36 patients, one of the clinic's doctors refused and moved to quash the subpoena. As New York City sagged into the worst fiscal crisis in its history, neither its beleaguered mayor, Abe Beam, nor any of his subordinates could summon the will to do battle with the clinic's angry radicals, who increasingly operated as an independent entity unanswerable to any authority. Every year or two, either ASA or HHC would make noises about evicting detox from the hospital. Time and again, the staff organized angry protests in response. In the worst, in 1975, a group of detox staffers stormed HHC's downtown Manhattan offices and barricaded themselves inside while they smashed furniture and windows in the president's anteroom. After that, HHC officials appeared notably reluctant to confront the clinic. That attitude disappeared abruptly in January 1978, when New York welcomed a new mayor, the feisty Ed Koch, who was sick and tired of radicals abusing city resources. Teamed with a media-friendly assemblyman named Charles Schumer, later the New York senator, Koch was unafraid of the denizens of Lincoln detox and determined to put them out of business. Hospitals are for sick people, not thugs, he groused in the Times. Detox officials, the mayor recalled years later, ran it like Che Guevara was their patron saint with his pictures all over the wall. It wasn't a hospital. It was a radical cell. The clinic's leaders, including Shakur, were determined to fight. When city officials called a meeting to discuss closing the clinic, one staffer declared, I don't work for you. I work for the people of South Bronx. When HHC officials told Sarita that it intended to evict detox from Lincoln Hospital, Sarita retorted, War is declared. Cold war for now. For all the bravado, Koch smashed Lincoln detox like a clove of garlic. As night fell on November 28, 1978, he had HHC's president, Joseph Lenaw, summon Sarita, Shakur, and ten other staffers to his downtown office at 125 Worth Street. When Shakur attempted to explain that the clinic was run by a socialist collective, Lenaw cut him off. Almost everyone in attendance was being reassigned, Lenaw announced, except for Sarita. Lenaw fired him on the spot. As the president spoke, the second part of Koch's plan was unfurling in the Bronx. A large group of uniformed police officers surrounded Lincoln Hospital and blocked every exit but that of the emergency room. Determined to physically evict the staff, they came armed with wire cutters, sledgehammers, and crowbars. At 8 p.m., his meeting completed, Lenaw appeared among the officers. Flanked by the mayor's press secretary and sundry other city officials, he ordered the two dozen detox staffers on duty that night to leave immediately. Outnumbered, they complied. The young lord leader, Mickey Melendez, trudged out carrying a basket of personal items. Matulu Shakur drove up at one point and, seeing that resistance was futile, boiled in anger. The clinic was closed, 
then reopened under a new name and under strict city control several blocks away. Shakur quit. A number of staffers sued to no effect. Lincoln Detox's days as a radical haven were over. Shakur found himself without a job, but where his fellow staffers lined up outside unemployment offices, he turned to area banks. The gang he had formed with Seku Odinga had carried out only one armed robbery in the previous year at a Chase Manhattan branch in Greenwich Village. But in the wake of Lincoln Detox closing, both the frequency and ambition of these actions would rise sharply. It was then that Shakur's white edge, Marilyn Buck and Sylvia Berardini, began to play significant roles in the group's bank robberies. There was an acceleration, yes, remembers Beraldini. You know, when you showed you were willing to go to the next level, the request never stopped. What help could you give? You gave it. It was hard to say no. For me, the eureka moment was one day Matulu said, you need to be at a certain corner. You open the trunk and put us in and drive away. I don't remember the corner, the car, even the year. I was scared shitless. But I did it. That was when I realized this was not just renting cars. This was when I realized what he was doing. It was around that point, Beraldini says, that she asked her May 19 comrades, Judy Clark and Susan Rosenberg, to help out. Both agreed. First, we did very precise things that were useful, and we did them because we were white, Beraldini continues. Cars, research. The most important thing was ID. We could buy the special cameras necessary to make it. We could do that with ease, and we did. A white girl like me does that, no one looks twice. But a black man? Thirty-five years later, asked why she joined Shakur and Odinga in their bank robberies, Beraldini folds her hands and heaves a deep sigh. We had developed a whole political vision of the U.S., how change would come to the U.S., that this involved the blacks getting their own nation. We thought we were helping people to promote that vision. It's unrealistic, yes, but we believed it. Also, I felt we were rectifying a long history of white people using black people in the U.S., going back to the Civil War. We really thought we were redressing that in some way. That was very important to us, too. It was also a question of resources. They were going to use the money to help the black community. And they did. Or at least I thought they did. Sounds crazy, right? Asks Elizabeth Fink. Let me tell you, it was crazy then, too. These people, Judy and Sylvia, they were driven crazy by their commitment to the blacks. It was like a cult. The question was, how crazy could you be? At first, only Buck took part in the actual robberies. The first took place at the Livingston Mall in suburban New Jersey, a half hour west of the Holland Tunnel. On December 19, 1978, three weeks after Lincoln Detox's closing, Shakur and the gang's three other gunmen drove into the mall parking lot in a stolen Chevrolet Caprice station wagon. Buck followed in a gray van she had rented in the adjacent town of Milburn. Around 10 a.m., Odinga and Shakur wandered into the Bamberger's department store. Shakur was wearing a long black leather coat that concealed a walkie-talkie. A saleswoman noticed him strolling through boys' wear, seemingly talking to himself. 
Odinga, meanwhile, nosed through infant apparel. At one point, he approached a sales lady and pleasantly asked, What size does a seven-year-old wear? At about 10.15, a coin deposit corporation armored car pulled up outside the store. Two armed guards emerged, one rolling a hand truck. Inside the store, Shakur, Odinga, and Larry Mack followed as the guards ascended an escalator toward the second-floor business office. Once the guards disappeared into the office, however, Mack became, became nervous and began edging away. Shakur was trying to lure him back when the guards reemerged, a brown duffel bag piled onto the hand truck. Odinga pulled his pistol and shouted, This is a holdup. Nobody moves. One guard went for his gun, but stopped when Shakur ran toward him, waving a pistol of his own. On the floor! On the floor! Shakur shouted. Both guards complied. At that point, Larry Mack began walking toward the escalator. Come back here! Shakur shouted at Mack. Come back here now! Mack stepped back for a moment, then ran down the escalator all the way to the getaway car where Tyrone Risen was waiting. When their two comrades didn't reappear after several minutes, Ryzen forced Mac to scramble back inside to see what was wrong. He found Shakur and Odinga hunched over the two prone guards, trying in vain to get handcuffs around their ankles. The cuffs were too small. They left the guards as they were, then pushed the hand truck down the escalator and out to the car. In the duffel bag was $200,000 in cash. Ryzen drove to a rendezvous point, abandoning the stolen car, and the four men climbed into Marilyn Buck's waiting van, which had been legitimately rented and thus was unlikely to draw the attention of pursuing police. Buck drove them back across the George Washington Bridge to a safe house apartment they had just rented over the Bronx border in the suburb of Mount Vernon. It was their smoothest and by far most lucrative robbery to date, and Buck had acquitted herself with aplomb. The family was ready for bigger things. Marilyn Buck, having spent time in prison herself, had a special affinity for those behind bars. That fall, she drew up a list of underground figures they might help escape. At the top of the list was none other than Willie Morales, who went on trial in a Queen's courtroom in early 1979. Found guilty, he appeared for sentencing April 20th. An unruly crowd, packed with policemen, FBI agents, and dozens of Puerto Rican, black, and white radicals, jammed the courtroom. Shoving matches broke out. The NYPD's William Valentine escorted Morales out of the courtroom. At one point, Morales looked Valentine dead in the eye and said, You're a dead man. Morales was taken to Bellevue, where he was given a cell in the third-floor prison ward as he waited for doctors to finally install the artificial hands he had been demanding. Ahead stretched years, maybe decades, behind bars. To all appearances, Willie Morales's career as a Puerto Rican revolutionary tilting against the imperialist Yankees was over. In fact, it was only beginning. Jailbreaks and Captures the Family and the FALN, 1979-1980 Even today, more than 35 years later, no one outside the FALN or the family knows precisely how they did it or even who took part. But the planning, it was clear, had taken weeks, and few of the policemen and FBI agents who later investigated the plot to rescue Willie Morales had any doubt that it was spearheaded by Marilyn Buck 
Sekou Odinga, and the FALN. Sylvia Berardini, while declining to discuss details, confirms that she received a formal request for aid from the FALN. We were asked to do this one aspect, to bring in the tools, she says. We were white and women, so of course we could do this on our own, and we did. Another key participant, it's been suggested, was the radical attorney, Susan Tippograph, who represented not only Marilyn Buck, but Willie Morales. Tippograph, it should be emphasized, was never charged in the case and has always denied any involvement, but prosecutors would later file affidavits that would strongly imply that it was she who had smuggled the wire cutters to Morales. At the time, May 1979, Morales was being held in the third-floor prison ward at Bellevue Hospital in Manhattan. Tippograph visited regularly. All visitors were required to be searched, but as federal prosecutors noted in a court filing four years later, Tippograph became increasingly vehement that the attorney-client privilege protected her from a search by corrections officers. On one occasion, when correction officers denied her request to be exempted from a search, she surrendered a knife only after repeated questioning. According to prosecutors, on the evening of Friday, May 18th, Tippograph arrived on the third floor and again objected when officers asked to search her. This time, for whatever reason, they relented. She was not searched, nor was her bag, nor was she made to walk through a metal detector. Somehow, at some point after this visit, Morales came into possession of a 14-inch pair of wire cutters. He hid them with the assistance of another prisoner, who helped him tie a series of shoelaces around his waist. To this, he attached a small hook. When Morales placed the wire cutters on the hook, they dangled between his legs, unnoticeable under his bathrobe. Over the next two nights, Morales, working only with the stumps of his hands, used the wire cutters to clip through the wire of the metal grate that covered his cell window. None of the six guards saw or heard a thing as he worked. Then, at 2.30 a.m. on May 21st, a Monday, Morales asked to go to the bathroom. The officer responsible for him, Thomas Ryan, led him to the toilet and back. At some point after that, Morales finished cutting a one-foot square hole in his window grate. Then he raised the window and punched out its screen. Forty feet below, stationed at positions up and down a courtyard that stretched along the building, stood several members of the family, perhaps as many as a dozen. The only one who ever confirmed his involvement in a later interview with the FBI was Tyrone Risen, the Vietnam veteran known as L.B., who said he guarded one end of the alley with an assault rifle. Marilyn Buck was almost certainly there. They had a ladder and placed it against the red brick wall beneath Morales' window. By that point, Morales had unfurled a ten-foot-long, flesh-colored bandage, tied one end to his bed, and tossed the other end out into the cool night. It wouldn't reach down to the ladder, but it was the best Morales could muster. Somehow, he wriggled through the hole he had cut. Then, and this was the part that flummoxed everyone afterward, the man with no fingers used the bandage as a rope to lower himself down the side of the building. He had wet the bandage to strengthen it, but in a matter of moments it snapped. FBI agents later surmised that he fell 20 feet onto a window-mounted air conditioning unit below, which showed a sizable dent afterward. 
Morales would later blame the fall for minor kidney damage he suffered. He landed on the dewy grass below, leaving two deep footprints in the turf. No one had heard or seen a thing. Officer Ryan, his supervisors later alleged, slept through the entire escape. One imagines that Morales exchanged a series of quick, elated hugs with his rescuers, who quickly slid him into a waiting car. By the time guards finally noticed his disappearance, an hour after dawn, Willie Morales was safely tucked away inside Marilyn Buck's small safehouse apartment in East Orange, New Jersey, an hour's drive west, eager to rejoin his comrades in the FALN. From the FBI's 69th Street offices to City Hall to the Department of Correction, official New York was thunderstruck by the brazen escape. Handless terrorist escapes, proclaimed the Post headline. How on earth had a one-eyed man with no hands managed to cut his way out of a cell and shimmy down the side of a building? How had he gotten the wire cutters? Above all, why hadn't anyone noticed? Below Morales' window, police found a broken stretch of bandage, a pair of hospital slippers, and Morales' glasses. The wire cutters had been left on the floor of his cell. As officers fanned out across the city in a fruitless manhunt, the city's corrections commissioner, William J. Kuros Jr., stepped before the microphones at City Hall, admitted there was sloppiness on our part, and announced that Officer Ryan was being suspended for negligence in permitting the escape. Three months later, Kuros himself and several of his aides were fired. All day, the escape was the talk of New York. Pete Hamill of the Daily News interviewed a dozen Puerto Ricans attending a prize fight at Madison Square Garden that night. The guy had no hands, and he gets out of the third floor? Hey, if I had no hands, I couldn't even get breakfast. And Morales got out of the third floor at Bellevue? A man named Pablo Miranda said. He ought to get a medal, man. You know someone was downstairs with a car, man. The guy's in a bathrobe. He can't get on the IRT. A buddy chimed in. Yeah, imagine a PR trying to get in a cab at 3 o'clock in the morning. In a bathrobe? He'd have no legs, man, Miranda yelped. Cabby'd run him right over, man. Even before Morales was whisked to safety, the family had begun planning its next jailbreak. Their target this time was a woman they all admired, who personified the black struggle and had been behind bars for now for six long years, Asada Shakur, better known as the heart and soul of the Black Liberation Army, Joanne Chesimard. Her fame had only grown since the night she was captured on the New Jersey Turnpike. Most of the May 19th women, from Judy Clark to Susan Rosenberg, had demonstrated outside her trials. Between 1973 and 1977, there had been an amazing seven of them in all, from, from bank and bar robberies to an attempted murder charge for one of the BLA's police shootings. With so few witnesses, six ended in dismissal or acquittal. Throughout, Chesimard proved a passionate defendant, shouting at judges and frequently being dragged from courtrooms. And it was her passion, in a way, that allowed her to stave off convictions. In the first proceeding, her trial for murdering New Jersey trooper Werner Furster during her 1973 capture, she was granted a mistrial after becoming pregnant. The father was another BLA member. Fred Hilton, and it was said that the child was conceived in a holding cell during one of the trials. For years afterward, retired officers would tell fanciful tales of having watched the two having sex, 
She later gave birth to a baby girl. Chesimard was tried for Furster's murder a second time in New Brunswick, New Jersey, in 1977, in a trial marked by protests for which Sylvia Berardini served as spokesperson. She was found guilty on March 25th and given a life sentence. In early 1979, when the family began planning her escape, Chesimard was being held at a women's prison in New Jersey. To free her, and to raise money they hoped to give her to escape the country, they decided on another robbery, their first since the heist at the Livingston Mall nine months earlier. The robbery they staged at New Jersey's Paramus Mall on September 11th, in fact, was a carbon copy of the earlier raid. Another Bamberger store, another pair of armored car guards, another getaway van driven by Marilyn Buck. The car they used A Ford Fairmont was provided by the one-time weatherman Kathy Boudin, who was working at a rental agency in Midtown Manhattan. It was Boudin's first known work with the group. The robbery went smoothly enough, save for a guard they had to punch and a pistol that misfired, and in a matter of minutes they were safely inside a van Buck was driving toward the safety of Manhattan. The take came to $105,000. They were ready. From the beginning, this was Seku Odinga's job. He and Chesimard were close. He doesn't deny a suggestion that they had once been lovers. I loved her, let's put it that way, he says quietly. She was one of our heroes. The escape idea, he says, came from Chesimard herself, who sent a message through friends. Odinga drove to the prison and, though a wanted man himself, boldly walked in and visited her. The setting, Odinga could see at a glimpse, was ideal. The Clinton Correctional Facility for Women sprawled across a rise among the green hills of rural western New Jersey, 15 miles from the Pennsylvania border. The prison might be taken for a forlorn community college. There were no outer walls or fencing. Only one dormitory, the squat, yellow-brick South Hall, housed maximum security prisoners, and only 17 of those. It alone was surrounded by a 15-foot chain-link fence, topped by two feet of barbed wire. They took their security for granted, Odinga recalls. They didn't even search people. They had metal detectors, but they never turned them on or used them. I just walked in and signed my false name. I saw her and I said, Baby sis, it's so good to see you. When are you coming home? In whispered conversations, they discussed the possibility of an escape attempt. Marighelli used to say that a good revolutionary has to be audacious. If you think it can be done, given the right circumstances, you can probably do it, Odinga says. She thought it could be done. I thought so too, for the simple reason that it was clear the authorities weren't thinking of it at all. The autumn sky was bright and a cloudless blue as Odinga stepped out of his car at the front gate on the morning of November 2, 1979. The reception area was a trailer at the entrance. Inside, Odinga signed the register. A guard checked his name against a list of visitors Chesimard had approved. He was waved through. There were no metal detectors. No one searched him. No one noticed the three fifty seven Magnum nestled against the small of his back. Standing behind the trailer, Odinga waited a few minutes before a van arrived to ferry him to South Hall. Behind the wheel was 31-year-old Stephen Ravatina. With a nod, Odinga slid into the passenger seat, and Ravatina drove him through the grounds. At South Hall, 
The only guard on duty, sitting in a glass booth inside the door, was an elderly matron named Helen Anderson. A kindly woman with a heart condition, she was known to inmates as Mama A. She buzzed Odinga through a metal door into the visiting room. Inside, Odinga hugged Chesimard and slid her the pistol. After leaving, Stephen Ravatina climbed back into his van. His radio squawked. Rav, there's more visitors at the gate for South Hall, a guard reported. Ravatina drove back to the trailer where he saw two young black men standing outside, waiting. He stepped out and talked to one of the guards as the two men slid into the van, one taking the passenger seat, the other a seat behind. After a moment, Ravatina hopped behind the wheel and began the drive to South Hall. As they reached its fence, the man in the passenger seat, one of Matulu Shakur's men, Mtaria Sundiata, produced a pistol and pressed it against Ravatina's head. When Ravatina glanced at his radio, Sundiata said coolly, You don't want to do that. The two groups, Odinga and Chesimard inside, the others outside, approached a bewildered Helen Anderson at about the same time. She wouldn't open the door, Odinga recalls. I had a three fifty seven Magnum, which would have shot right through that glass, or most of it. I had armor-piercing bullets, too. But what I did was just put a stick of dynamite on the window where she was sitting. Then it was just a matter of convincing her it was to her benefit to open these doors and live through the day, which is how I put it. She did, after talking with Asada a moment. Asada told her, We will do nothing to hurt you. Once she was convinced, she let us out. When Stephen Raffatina stepped inside, two guns at his back, he came face to face with Chesimard, brandishing a three fifty seven Magnum and Odinga behind her. Someone produced a set of handcuffs and cuffed Ravatina and Anderson together. Come on, move it, one of the men said, and the little group, now numbering four black militants and their two hostages, walked outside and climbed into the van. A new face, Winston Patterson, took the wheel. He had been hastily recruited the night before. The hostages later said Patterson was by far the most nervous of the group. As he drove away from South Hall, Patterson took a wrong turn into a dead end beside a prison building, forcing Chesimard to show him the way. The van backed up, then circled through a parking lot and bumped straight onto a grassy knoll, hitting the grass so hard Mama A hopped in her seat. When she shot a look at Ravatina, he whispered, Shut up and be cool. Driving down the far side of the knoll, the, man met a service, the van met a service road. Watch out for state police cars, Ravatina volunteered. If the state police see this van, they'll blow it to smithereens. Not a soul noticed the hurried escape. A minute later, Patterson turned the van into a parking lot for the adjacent Hunterton State School for the Developmentally Challenged. Odinga had two cars waiting, a, a blue compact and a white Lincoln Continental. Maryland Buck emerged from one car, and the group began furiously opening trunks and changing license plates. As they did, Matulu Shakur drove up in a blue van. Ravatina managed to see three digits on one license plate. He stopped looking when one of the black men pointed a gun his way and said, Get down. After a moment, everyone leaped into the cars and sped off, leaving Mama A and Ravatina cuffed in the van. The waiting part was scary enough, recalls Sylvia Berraldini, who was driving the Lincoln. The thing I remember 
like it was a film, like pictures, was the white van approaching. Driving over, they took a wrong turn and had to turn around. Then it all went very quickly. They came, we got out, we opened trunks and changed cars and drove off. It all went very quickly. It had to. What I remember is looking back at the white van and seeing what the FBI later called the two hostages, poking up their heads and peering out at us as we drove off. I'll never forget the looks on their faces. Chesimard and Odinga curled inside the Lincoln's trunk. As Beraldini drove east toward Manhattan, she was startled to see state police cruisers screaming past, lights rolling. I had a gun between my legs, a pistol, an automatic, she recalls. I saw police everywhere. I watched one take a U-turn and drive back to the prison. And you know, what I thought was, God, give me the strength to shoot if I have to. Because I never shot anybody. But if they stopped us and went for the trunk, I would have to shoot. I said I would. I kept thinking, I have to do this. I have to. Back at the prison, Ravatina and Mama A had spread the alarm. Phone calls went out to state police headquarters in Trenton. Across the state, troopers stopped what they were doing and sped toward the prison. Within an hour, roadblocks began going up. But it was too late. Beraldini says she dropped off Odinga and Chesimard at a parking garage in suburban New Jersey, and by the time the roadblocks went up, Chesimard had been deposited inside a dingy safe house apartment in East Orange. The three vehicles were last seen speeding east, and by nightfall they had vanished. They had done it. In barely ten minutes, without attracting the notice of a single outside guard, the family had rescued the most notorious female revolutionary of the decade. The mood inside the apartment was jubilant. Buck took Chesimard's photo and dummied up a new driver's license. They gave her $50,000, half the proceeds of the Paramus Mall robbery, and offered the choice of fleeing to Libya, China, Angola, or Cuba, or remaining in the United States. Two nights later, with the police canvassing the state in search of them, Chesimard folded herself into a car trunk. Buck and Shakur drove her west into Pennsylvania, where that night they reached an apartment building in the rundown East Liberty section of Pittsburgh. Chesimard would live there for the next nine months, until August 1980, when, according to a later court testimony, she boarded a plane that landed in the Bahamas, from where she eventually made her way to the safety of Fidel Castro's Cuba. Today, Odinga denies this. There were lots of ways to get her out, he muses. Mexico was always good. The escape was front-page news across the country. Caught unawares, the FBI had no idea who might be involved. Sketches were drawn up of four suspects. A series of apartments were raided in Brooklyn and the Bronx. But the FBI found nothing. The Scales of Justice Trials, Surrenders, and the Family, 1980-1981 Six weeks after Joanne Chesimar's jailbreak, a new decade dawned, the 1980s. The era of the underground radicals seemed an increasingly dim memory. There were still stragglers who had yet to turn themselves in, most notably Bernadine Dorn and the remains of Weather's old leadership. Ray Levasseur was still out there robbing banks, but as far as the public was concerned, they were a lunatic fringe. What remained of the armed struggle movement was so obscure, 
No one suspected that Matulu Shakur and the family even existed. They had managed to free Chesimard and Willie Morales without leaving a clue, at least none the FBI could find. But the family had a problem, a serious one. When something pollutes a radical cell's intellectual purity, whether it is allegations of sexism or racism, as happened with weather, leftists call it a corruption. The family had been deeply corrupted from the outset by a familiar scourge. Illegal drugs, mainly cocaine. Shakur was a heavy user, as were a dozen or more of the hangers-on who lounged about the acupuncture clinic he opened in a four-story brownstone on West 139th Street in Harlem in the summer of 1980. Shakur, who lived on the upper floors with several others, including his wife, two former stewardesses, and his assistants, called it the Black Acupuncture Advisory Association of North America, BANA. Later, when the FBI caught wind of things, a telephone wiretap recorded 83 separate drug purchases during a single four-week period. Cocaine corrupted the family at every turn. Because Sekou Odinga considered drug use counter-revolutionary, Shakur tried to keep his habit a secret, but it was no use. Relations between the two steadily deteriorated. Money and guns were forever going missing from Banna's safe, all swapped for cocaine. To buy more, and without telling Odinga or the white women, who wouldn't approve, Shakur and his acolytes began robbing drug dealers and UPS trucks on their own. But it was never enough. Part of the problem was that Banna's acupuncturists, schooled in Shakur's revolutionary rhetoric, considered their work a public service. If customers couldn't pay, and in Harlem they often couldn't, they were treated for free. With little cash coming in, and much of it going for cocaine, the clinic lost money from its first day. By 1980, Matulu Shakur had become a classic coke fiend, a big talker with white powder on his upper lip, always desperate to make his next big score. The irony was that the white women, the true revolutionaries, knew nothing of his drug problem. Not Marilyn Buck, Sylvia Berardini, Judy Clark, Susan Rosenberg, or the latest to join the group, the one-time weatherman and townhouse survivor, Kathy Boudin who worked odd jobs while raising a newborn with her partner, David Gilbert. To a woman, they believed they were supporting the second coming of the Black Liberation Army. I knew nothing about drugs. Nothing, Beraldini recalls. I just thought Matulu and those guys were hyper, you know, energetic, and they never slept. And I kept thinking, why are they so pumped up and excited all the time? I thought they were just on, like, a high metabolism. I didn't know. The robberies that followed the Chesimar jailbreak illustrated the degradation of the family's capabilities. The first, another armored car, came at lunchtime on February 20, 1980, outside a Corvette's department store in Greenberg, a northern New York suburb. While Shakur and the women watched from getaway cars, Odinga, Tyrone Risen, and another family member, jumped the courier, handcuffed him, and forced him to lie on the pavement beside his vehicle. Unfortunately, the back door was locked, and another guard was inside. The trio punched, kicked, and threatened to shoot the hapless courier, but nothing would persuade the second guard to open the armored car. Go ahead! Kill him! he shouted. I don't give a damn! Crestfallen, 
the family withdrew without incident to the safety of a new safe house apartment in the suburb of Mount Vernon. Only then did Odinga realize the courier's keys could have opened the car's doors. They had surrendered too soon. Two months later, on April 22nd, they did much better. The target was once again an armored car, this time a perlator truck outside a bank branch in Inwood, New York, on Long Island. They rammed it with, the, with a rented van, then disarmed the driver when he emerged. As Tyrone Risen stood in the road, warning off traffic with an M16, the others rifled the truck, making off with $529,000, by far their biggest haul to date. It was also the last successful robbery the family was able to stage for more than a year. During the second half of 1980, much of its focus was directed toward a Brinks armored truck that serviced a chemical bank branch in Nanuet, New York, just across the Hudson River from the northern reaches of Manhattan. The job was laboriously scouted by a one-time BLA fighter named Jamal Joseph, who as a teenager had been a protege of Daruba Moore's. After serving time for his role in the Sam Napier murder in April 1971, Joseph was back on the street, working intermittently with Shakur. But both times Shakur and his men set a trap for the Brinks truck, it inexplicably failed to appear. It was during these scouting expeditions that some in the group first noticed the route of a second Brinks truck. Shakur began spending time in the area, studying the habits of his three couriers. But the more he discussed a possible robbery, the more Sekou Odinga resisted. Any robbery in the Nanuet area, he argued, would entail a getaway along one of the area's highways, many of which fed into the closest route back to Manhattan, the mighty Tapan Z Bridge. There was no way to predict the traffic, and no way, no way to escape it once it was encountered. Tyrone Risen termed the Nyack job nothing but sure danger. No, Odinga warned. It was nothing but sure death. One reaction to discussion of radical violence during the 1970s and early 1980s is that much of it was harmless. Save for Francis Tavern, bombed by the FALN, and the policeman assassinated by the BLA, and the immolation of the SLA, not that many people died. But as the underground dwindled, its remaining members grew increasingly desperate and dangerous. The single deadliest year for radical violence was in fact 1981, 11 years after the townhouse. Seven people died, including young Alex McMillan in the FALN attack at JFK Airport. Most met their fate at the hands of the family, which, as 1981 dawned, was riven with internal disputes and, at least where Matulu Shakur and his cocaine-addled acolytes were concerned, sloppier and more violent by the day. Cocaine use was so out of hand that Shakur had a friend draw up official anti-drug guidelines, which were ignored. Sekou Odinga repeatedly confronted Shakur about his drug use. Shakur denied it. Worse, Odinga had invested money in the Harlem Acupuncture Center, and he suspected that that money was going to cocaine as well. Any kind of drug use bothered me, he recalls. There was scuttlebutt that certain people were involved in heavy drugs, that they were losing control. Everyone involved denied it. I will say a lot of money I invested disappeared. 
I kept wondering, what is really going on? The May 19 women, especially Sylvia Berardini, brought tensions of their own. Berardini and Marilyn Buck had grown to detest each other. Both were immensely proud of their anointed positions alongside the black militants they revered, and each saw the other as a primary rival. Berardini also despised Tyrone Risen, whom she thought insufficiently political and rude. Tyrone Risen was creepy, she says. He was so into guns. We avoided him at all costs. In an effort to organize themselves, Shakur and Odenga formally split the family into two teams. The first, which they dubbed the primary team, consisted of their five best soldiers, themselves, Tyrone Risen, and two of Shakur's men, Donald Weems, a.k.a. Kuwasi Balagoon, and Amtaria Sundiata. The primary team handled all the gunplay and made all the decisions in private meetings. The second group, dubbed the secondary team, consisted of all the white women and anyone else they chose to rope into a robbery. Despite their strident feminism, the women largely did as they were told. Tensions within the group grew after another pair of failed robbery attempts that winter, both in Danbury, Connecticut. One, on March 23rd, was one of Shakur's side jobs. Odinga and Risen weren't even told of it. They were on vacations, in fact, much less invited along. A perlator truck, flush with cash from a Reed's department store, had just pulled up outside a brokerage office that afternoon when Shakur and his deputies Balagoon and Sundiata rushed it, guns drawn. The courier, Daniel Archambault, was intercepted in the parking lot and made to lie flat. The man behind the wheel, Joseph W. Dombrowskis, a perlator veteran, looked up from his clipboard to see a black man pointing a shotgun at him. When he refused to open the door, the shotgun went off, blasting a hole in a side window and showering him with glass. When Dombrowskis pulled his pistol and returned fire, Shakur and the others ran. Afterward, Odinga and Risen were incensed, at being excluded, at the lack of professionalism, at the unnecessary violence. Odinga prided himself on smooth jobs without gunfire. He couldn't understand why Shakur's people were growing so trigger-happy. It was inevitable that the family's increasing appetite for violence would turn deadly. It happened on the drizzly morning of Tuesday, June 2, 1981, outside a Chase Manhattan branch in the northern reaches of the Bronx. It was another armored car job, one the group had canceled twice before at the last second, fearing, apparently incorrectly, that they had been spotted by police. Judy Clark was the lookout, alerting the primary team, all jammed into a yellow Plymouth station wagon when the Brinks truck was approaching the bank. When it appeared, Shakur pulled to a screeching halt beside and just behind it. Odinga jumped from the front seat, cradling a shotgun, and told the two couriers, William Maroney and Michael Schlachter, to freeze. They did so and followed his orders to lie on the pavement. Back in the car, Risen, carrying an M16, was momentarily unable to open his door. A parked car blocked it. By the time Shakur inched the car forward, allowing Risen to exit, he was screaming and cursing. Emerging into the parking lot, Risen glanced at the two prone Brinks couriers and inexplicably opened fire, raking both men with bullets. Schlachter was hit three times. He would survive. Maroney, who was 59 that day, 
a 38-year Brinks veteran, would not. He was shot four times, twice in the head. Odinga and the others gathered their wits long enough to grab several money bags, then drove off, at one point firing a burst of gunfire at a bakery truck whose driver was blocking their exit from the parking lot. The murder of William Maroney was a turning point for the family. For the first time, they drew the attention of the NYPD, which launched a full-scale investigation, assigning 50 officers from the Major Case Squad, the Central Robbery Division, and the Bronx Detective Division to pursue the robbers full-time. A nearby security guard, Willie Lee, sat with police sketch artists, and the resulting drawings of three of the robbers were published in the Daily News. They closely resembled Shakur, Balagoon, and Sundiata. Shakur was shaken. He had, he had his hair braided in an effort to change his appearance. Both Ryzen and Odinga began talking about retirement. After the robbery, the two hid out in rural Georgia, where Ryzen had purchased a house. Shakur gave him money to buy more land so all of them could build homes nearby. It wasn't just the primary team that was running scared. Maroney's murder also provoked an unprecedented revolt among the white women. June 2, 1981. I'll never forget that day. The day Tyrone Risen shot that g- the guard, says Sylvia Berardini, who was not involved in the robbery. Everybody was very upset about that. Until then, we had done everything possible to avoid violence. That had been our agreement. I told Shakur, this cannot be ignored. We, the white women, decided a pause had to be taken. We said we would participate in nothing else until a meeting was held to confront these issues. But that didn't happen, because people were scared. They scattered to the four winds. Not until it was far too late would Beraldini realize that no one, least of all Matulu Shakur, was listening to a word she said. All this, the string of botched robberies, the murder of William Maroney, the accelerating spiral into rampant violence and drug use, played out against the backdrop of a year-long debate within the primary team over the wisdom of ambitious armored car robberies like the one Shakur was planning outside a chemical bank branch in the suburb of Nanuet, across the Hudson River in Rockland County, New York. Shakur had studied the job for months and was certain it could be the biggest haul ever, easily more than $1 million in free cash. Shakur was so excited he gave the robbery a nickname, the Big Dance. Money from the Big Dance, he assured a skeptical Odinga, would fulfill all their dreams. Odinga and Ryzen could retire in comfort if they wanted. Or they could join Shakur and Sundiata, who swore they planned to use their share of the proceeds to launch a true revolutionary assault, the planned bombing of a string of New York police precincts. Odinga had studied Shakur's plans for the big dance in detail, however, and he believed it was a suicide mission. If they got caught in traffic, they would be sitting ducks. Worse, Shakur planned to stage the robbery in the late afternoon, when the Brinks truck was ending its route laden with a full day's cash. For Odinga, this was far too close to rush hour. The plan actually made sense, he recalls, but it had to go perfectly. If just one thing went wrong... They were dead, and they had no backup plan. There was only one way in and out of that town, the highways, and they were going to use the highways. It was so stupid. For a time, Odinga agreed to go along, though he and Ryzen secretly agreed to abort at the slightest hint of danger. 
They had actually attempted the Nanoette robbery no fewer than four times, once the previous fall and three times that May. Each time, the truck either failed to show or Odinga or Shakur bailed at the last minute. After the last attempt, Odinga said he would try no more. Each time Shakur urged him to reconsider, Odinga argued in favor of another bank in the Bronx. The publicity and internal arguments that erupted in the wake of William Maroney's murder did nothing to curb Shakur's zeal for the job. By that fall, he had decided once again to attempt the big dance, this time without Odinga and Ryzen. He and the other members of the, tr- of the primary team, Balagoon and Sundiata, thought the payoff was worth the risk. The white women, as usual, would do as they were told. All that August and September, Shakur made his preparations. He brought in several other of his Banna acolytes to help out. Marilyn Buck and Judy Clark agreed to drive trailing cars. I was in Rome October 10th when I heard all this, Sylvia Berardini recalls. Susan Rosenberg called me. She said, you have to come back. Things are bad. So I return, and the situation is, this thing has been planned, and there's no going back. I couldn't stop it. That Tuesday, October 20th, 1981, was a special day for the three guards in the Silver Brinks truck, the last they would enjoy after 15 years working together. Peter Page, a 49-year-old father of three, was being transferred to a new route. All three men were feeling a bit nostalgic. That morning at 7.30, as a crisp north wind whipped leaves in the armored truck's wake, they headed down to a bank in Newark, the first stop in their daily run. At each stop, Page and his partner, Joe Trombino, hauled out the pushcart, rolled it inside, then returned to the truck laden with white canvas bags of cash as their driver, an easygoing 48-year-old named James Kelly, filled out the paperwork on a clipboard in the front seat. Hopscotching their way up the west side of the Hudson, they had made 17 stops when Kelly pulled the truck up in front of the chemical bank in Nanuet. Sitting across the street in a red Chevrolet van, Shakur cursed as he glimpsed only a single bag on the pushcart Page and Trombino wheeled out of the bank. Once again, he decided to hold off. As the Brinks truck eased away from the curb, Heading to its final stop, a bank inside the Nanuet Mall, Shakur fell in behind, furious, hoping they would hit pay dirt at the final stop. Everything was in place, maybe for the last time. A mile away, the ex-weatherman David Gilbert and Kathy Boudin were waiting behind a department store in the Switch vehicle, a U-Haul trailer. Marilyn Buck and Judy Clark were trailing the van in a tan Honda. This was not to mention the four cocaine-fueled armed robbers hunched behind Shakur in the van. Five minutes later, the Brink truck coasted to a stop beside a rear entrance of the mall. It was 3.35. All across Nanouette and adjoining suburbs, schoolchildren were, sp- were piling into buses for the ride home. Fifteen miles away, traffic on the Tapan Z Bridge was thickening. As Page and Trombino rolled the pushcart inside for what would be their last stop together, Shakur idled the van in the parking lot, watching. On his nod, Kuasi Balagoon jumped out and strode to a bench at a bus stop across from the armored truck. If you're waiting for the bus, we just missed it, 
a woman named Barbara Bowles volunteered. We have an hour to wait. Balagoon sat beside her. Keeping one eye trained on the mall entrance, he remarked what a beautiful autumn day it was, how striking the multicolored leaves were. Just the other morning, he said, he had seen a tree so red it reminded him of the burning bush. Oh, like in the Bible, Bowles said with a chuckle. Balagoon fell silent as he studied the setup. There was scaffolding over the mall entrance. Two workers stood atop it. When Bowles asked if he knew what they were doing, he said no. Balagoon was still staring at the mall when the Brinks men reappeared, the pushcart before them, three bulging bags draped down its length. Making a split-second decision, Shakur floored the accelerator, and the red van surged forward, racing between rows of parked cars. As it did, the two Brinks guards reached the back of the armored truck. Kelly mashed a button, unlocking the rear door, and Trombino lifted one of the three bags and tossed it inside. The van screeched to a halt beside the truck. Bedlam ensued. Three men in ski masks leap out the back. Maybe it was the cocaine coursing through their veins, maybe the frustration of waiting all these months. But this time, the family shouted no warnings and took no prisoners. They just opened fire. Two men from the van hoisted automatic weapons and raked the truck with gunfire. As they did, Balagoon pulled a pistol and ran toward it, firing at the two guards. Trombino managed to yank out his pistol and fire a shot before a bullet tore into his shoulder, nearly ripping his arm off. Inside the truck, Kelly first thought he was hearing firecrackers. Spying the four men with guns, he yelled to Trombino, Grab the shotgun! Grasping his wound, Trombino hollered back, I got no arm! Gunfire exploded across the mall parking lot. Peter Page, shot in the throat, fell to an adjacent sidewalk and was dead within minutes. One of the attackers fired two blasts into the windshield, showering Kelly with glass and blowing him against the seat, where he fell unconscious. One of Shakur's men, Sundiata, jumped from the van and, along with the others, stepped over the fallen guards and snatched up six blood-smeared money sacks. All told, they contained nearly $1.6 million in cash. The sacks were so heavy, Sundiata broke three fingernails, lifting them. The attackers were in such a rush, they failed to notice more money sacks inside. They left behind $1.3 million. It was over in 40 seconds. The red Chevy van and its occupants, all uninjured, roared off across the parking lot. Inside, Shakur and his men were jubilant, shouting, We did it! We did it! As they disappeared into the afternoon traffic, Kelly came too. He staggered back into the back of the Brinks truck, where, where the blood lay so thick on the floor he later compared it to chocolate pudding. Stepping out the back, he cradled Trombino's head as a group of bystanders ran up, asking what they could do. Over and over, Kelly just kept saying, They shot my friends. They shot my friends. They shot my friends. While Matulu Shakur readied for the robbery by cleaning guns and studying escape routes, David Gilbert and Kathy Boudin had been preoccupied with a more prosaic concern, finding a babysitter. Leaving Gilbert's green Toyota outside the sitter's building on West 108th Street that morning, Boudin had taken 14-month-old Chessa upstairs and dropped him off, promising to be back by 5 o'clock, even though the robbery was set for 4 on the eve of rush hour. On the sidewalk, she ran into a friend who volunteered to take Chessa on a play date in Central Park later. 
Boudin said that would be nice. The couple had been underground for 11 years. Like almost all the weathermen, they hadn't actually done much for 10 of those years, not since their narrow escape from San Francisco FBI agents, the encirclement, back in the spring of 1971. Gilbert had spent much of his time idling in Denver, though he later took credit for the bombing of a Puerto Rican bank branch in New York in 1975. He had actually gone above ground for a time after Weather's demise, eventually joining Boudin in New York when she decided to begin helping Beraldini and the other May 19 women. After surviving both the townhouse and the encirclement, Boudin seems to have split her time between San Francisco, New York, and Boston, where she is believed to have helped out in several minor bombings. By 1980, she and Gilbert were squabbling new parents, living separately in New York, keeping their revolutionary dreams alive by helping Shakur and Odinga rob banks. This was the first robbery that they had joined, though Boudin, who took a job at a rental car agency, had secured cars for several jobs, and she was nervous as Gilbert drove into the Bronx. They parked outside the offices of Kingsbridge Moving and Storage on 230th Street and rented an orange and silver U-Haul truck. From a burlap knapsack, Gilbert lifted out several rolls of contact paper, which they hung inside the rear windows so nobody could see inside. Then they drove up the Hudson, crossing the river at the Tapanzi Bridge, and were at the rendezvous point, the rear loading dock of an abandoned Corvette's department store, three hours before the robbery. Boudin was deeply frightened. Guns scared her. As they waited, she couldn't sit still. Gilbert assured her everything would be fine. Finally, just before four o'clock, he suggested she walk around to the back of the truck and make sure everything was in place. Just then, Matulu Shakur's red Chevy van swerved around the back of the store. Inexplicably, Shakur stopped the vehicle a hundred feet short of the truck. Gilbert, his rearview mirror obstructed for about 30 seconds by Boudin, didn't see the van. When he finally did, Boudin hopped back inside and Gilbert, despite having been strictly admonished never to move from his designated position, drove over to the waiting van. By all accounts, this was the group's fatal error. The spot where Gilbert had parked could not be seen from nearby homes, but the spots Shakur chose could Afterward, more than one observer remarked that it was just the kind of sloppy error Sokseku Odinga would never have made. A single, unpaved lane, main drive, ran into the back of the Corvette's parking lot. A single house, separated from the lot by a chain-link fence, afforded a view not only of Shakur's van, but Gilbert's U-Haul truck, and now a third car, the tan Honda driven by Judy Clark. And as fate would have it, at that very moment, a college student named Sandra Torgerson glanced up from an economics paper she was writing and peered through the living room of the house on Main Drive. Out in the parking lot, she saw a black man with a rifle standing beside the van. A half dozen other people, blacks and whites, men and women, were scurrying about, transferring what appeared to be heavy burlap bags between cars. Mom, there's a man with a gun outside, Sandra yelled to her mother. Roxanne, who was busy in the basement. As Roxanne scurried up the stairs, Sandra grabbed a pen and paper and hustled out into the yard, hoping to scribble down license plate numbers. By the time she reached the fence, only the red van remained. It appeared abandoned. Sandra ran back inside and called the police. 
I just saw something strange happen behind Corvettes, she told the dispatcher. Quickly, she described the black men with guns and, crucially, all three vehicles, the van, the U-Haul, and the Honda. Police from all over Rockland County were already converging on the robbery site. Within minutes, descriptions of the three vehicles were broadcast widely. Police in the scenic village of Nyack splayed atop high cliffs lining the Hudson River at the western end of the vast Taponzee Bridge, knew what to do when there was a robbery in Rockland County. Block all routes to the bridge. When word of the Nanouette Mall gunfight was broadcast at 3.56 p.m., a young officer named Brian Lennon was sipping coffee in the village donut shop on Main Street. Lennon's radio burbled, and a superior ordered him to block the entrance to the New York Thruway at Route 59 a mile west of the bridge. Lennon leaped into his patrol car and made it to the highway entrance in three minutes. The police band was exploding with orders and information, and by the time Lennon pulled his cruiser across the single-lane entrance to the thruway, he had heard a description of the getaway cars. The moment he stepped into the road, a shotgun in one hand, three vehicles were lined up in front of him. As luck would have it, the first was the gang's tan Honda, Judy Clark was behind the wheel. Marilyn Buck was at her side. The second car was a BMW, driven by a woman named Norma Hill, who, with her elderly mother beside her, needed to get to the dry cleaners in time to dress for a dinner she and her husband were hosting that night at the Rainbow Room atop Rockefeller Center. Officer Lennon barely noticed either car. His eyes were trained on the orange and silver U-Haul truck, directly beyond them. As he pointed his shotgun toward the truck, a pair of Nyack police cars pulled up behind it. Officers emerged from both. One was Waverly Brown, an Air Force veteran who was the only black man on the Nyack force. Everyone called him Chipper. The second was a tall, thin sergeant named Edward O'Grady, a red-haired Vietnam veteran. Both stepped onto the road behind the U-Haul, guns drawn. A detective named Arthur Keenan followed. Ahead, Officer Lennon waved Clark's Honda through, glancing into her rearview mirror, acutely aware of the drama unfolding behind her. She pulled to the side of the road, fifty feet beyond Lennon's cruiser, stepped out, and peered back at the roadblock. Norma Hill slowed her BMW to ask what was going on, but Officer Lennon dismissed her with the wave of his hand. Move on, he said. Staring at the U-Haul as it inched forward, Lennon raised his shotgun and pointed it directly at the dark-haired woman sitting in the passenger seat. It was Kathy Boudin. At the wheel sat David Gilbert. Behind them, hidden under a blanket, crouched Matulu Shakur and four very excitable armed robbers carrying M-16s and shotguns. As he drove, relaying reports on the traffic to Shakur, Gilbert had been doing yoga-inspired breathing exercises to stay calm. Beside him, Boudin was coming unglued. The guns, the blood, the machismo, it was all too much for her. She desperately wanted to get back to the babysitters. When Officer Lennon motioned with his shotgun, Boudin opened the passenger door and stepped out, hands held high. Almost immediately, she doubled over, as if in pain, shying away from Lennon's weapon. Gilbert calm, calmly stepped out of the van as well, hands over his head. He walked around the vehicle and joined Kathy on the grassy roadside where the three officers and Detective Keenan trained their guns on them. 
The three officers exchanged glances. No one spoke the obvious. The Nanowette Mall attackers had been black men. This couple was white. The difference lay at the heart of Matula Shakur's plans, and always had. David Gilbert and Kathy Boudin believed they were aiding a black revolutionary army. They were risking their lives for that one simple, foolish belief. To Shakur, who cared far more for cocaine and cash than for some imaginary black revolution, they were simply white faces, crackers whose sole use was in distracting the police, as they now proceeded to do. Hunched on the roadside, Boudin noticed Sergeant O'Grady. Tell him to put the gun back, she shouted over the din of the traffic, alluding to Officer Lennon. O'Grady thought a moment. The radio had already carried a report of a U-Haul truck, driven by black men heading south toward New Jersey. O'Grady slid his pistol into its holster, then turned to Officer Brown and said, I don't think it's them. When Lennon shot him a glance, O'Grady said, Put the shotgun back. I don't think it's them. Lennon walked back up the ramp to his cruiser, opened the door, and slid inside. Detective Keenan, however, wasn't so sanguine. He stepped to the back of the U-Haul and yanked the rear door. It was locked. I want to know what's in there, he said aloud. A moment later, the door burst open. The entrance ramp erupted in gunfire as five black men, all armed, leaped out and opened fire. Detective Keenan, struck in the thigh, dived to the roadside and rolled behind a pine tree. Two M-16 rounds struck Waverly Brown in the chest and shoulder. When he fell to the pavement, screaming for help, another gunman walked up and fired into his chest. Sergeant O'Grady managed to pull his pistol and fire off one or two shots before being hit by three M-16 rounds. He crumbled to the pavement in a spreading pool of blood. It was over in seconds. The only officer left unhurt was Brian Lennon, sitting in his patrol car 30 feet up the ramp. When the gunfire stopped, he glanced back and saw several men standing around the U-Haul. He poked his shotgun out the window and fired a single blast, then ducked down. The next time he looked up, he was startled to see the U-Haul surging up the ramp toward him. A moment later, it struck the patrol car, bumping it aside. Lennon peered up, saw the driver, pointed the shotgun and pulled the trigger. Nothing happened. It was empty. The truck sped up the ramp, heading onto the throughway. As it disappeared, Lennon drew his service revolver and fired two shots in vain. Not all the attackers, however, made it back into the U-Haul. Two pointed a gun at a local doctor driving a silver Oldsmobile who tried to drive around the scene. He leaped out of his car as they stole it and drove off. David Gilbert, meanwhile, ran up the entrance ramp and joined Judy Clark in her tan Honda. It, too, drove off. Out on the throughway, rubbernecking drivers were slowing their cars, staring at the scene. One, an off-duty corrections officer named Michael Koch, noticed a white woman running down the exit ramp after the fleeing U-Haul. Sensing something was amiss, he pulled his camper to one side of the highway, leaped out, and sprinted across eight lanes of traffic, hurtling the median divider like a track star. The woman was jogging alongside the highway when Koch, waving his badge and a gun, grabbed her from behind. She appeared panic-stricken, babbling, He shot him! I didn't shoot him! He shot him! I didn't shoot him! Koch had no idea what was going on. He had no idea who Kathy Boudin was. But he pushed her back toward the entrance ramp where the two fallen officers, Waverly Brown and Ed O'Grady, were dying. 
Within minutes, every police car in the county was racing toward the throughway ramp. Among the first to appear was Alan Colsey, a 29-year-old police chief in South Nyack, who came upon the scene moments later. His radio reported that some of the attackers were fleeing in a U-Haul truck, some in a tan Honda, and some in a white 1980 Oldsmobile. Colsey could see there was no way to flee via the throughway. It was fast turning into a parking lot. A lifelong area resident, he knew which way anyone heading for the city would need to go. Colsey floored the accelerator and shot north toward Christian Herald Road, which winds east through a wooded area. He reached the road just as a tan Honda whizzed across his vision going at least 50 miles an hour. On its heels sped a white Olds. He wheeled in pursuit, watching as the two fleeing cars passed a line of others waiting at a red light. Colsey called for help again and again, but the police band was clogged as the throughway. No one responded to his increasingly urgent pleas. Like it or not, he was on his own. Colsey followed the cars into Nyack, past the volunteer ambulance building, then down a hill toward a T-intersection. The olds veered and made the turn, but the Honda driver lost control, skidding through the intersection and crashing sideways into a concrete wall in front of a white Victorian home. Colsey stopped his car across the street and jumped out, drawing his pistol. Traffic kept streaming through the intersection, blocking his line of sight. He could hear the Honda's engine racing and see what appeared to be three people in the car. As he watched, a white man with a heavy black beard stepped out of the right side. It was David Gilbert. To Colsey's surprise, Gilbert began walking toward him, shouting something he couldn't hear over a din of passing cars. Colsey yelled for him to raise his hands. After a moment, he did. The driver... A petite white woman in a tweed jacket and slacks eased out next. She also raised her hands. By then, two more policemen arrived. There was a third man in the back seat of the Honda, a black man who had been wounded. Colsey took them all into custody. Everyone else got away. Behind them, Matulu Shakur's cocaine-field gunman had left three men dead and three others wounded. I was told to stay home all day that day. Sylvia Berardini recalls, Then I got the call. Judy has been busted, with David. Berardini hurried to the Mount Vernon apartment where the survivors were gathering. In their scramble to escape, Marilyn Buck's gun had gone off, wounding her in the knee. I just remember everything was crazy, and we had to clean everything, get rid of all the fingerprints. We cleaned for hours, cleaning, cleaning. Then the effort became to get Marilyn saved. That took like a whole month. After a doctor friend treated the wound, we got her out of the country, to Mexico. Seku Odinga was driving in Brooklyn when he heard the news on the radio. An armored car robbery in Rockland County? Right away, I knew. My first reaction? Damn fools, I told you. Second reaction? What can I do to help? Another guy wanted to take me up there to the Mount Vernon safe house. I refused to go. It was just way too crazy. Within hours, the hunt for the Brinks robbers became the top priority of every police officer and FBI agent in the New York area. For the moment, no one had a clue who any of the others were. A search of the captured vehicles, however, quickly led to Buck's apartment in East Orange, New Jersey. Buck was the family's logistics expert and kept detailed records, all of which fell into police hands by the next day. By nightfall on Wednesday, barely 24 hours after the robbery, 
the NYPD had identified a string of the family's safe houses, including the Mount Vernon apartment, which had been abandoned just hours before. As it happened, the building superintendent had grown suspicious and jotted down license plate numbers of several of the gang's cars. One was the gray Chrysler LeBaron Sekou Odinga was driving through the South Ozone Park section of Queens, two mornings later with Imtiyari Sundiata slouched in the passenger seat. In an amazing bit of luck, an NYPD detective named Daniel Kelly noticed the plate while driving down Folk Boulevard. Kelly called for backup. After a minute, Odinga noticed the pursuit and floored the accelerator, veering first onto the Van Wyck Expressway, then onto busy Northern Boulevard. I knew I was in trouble when I saw them switch lanes on me, Odinga recalls. That was my fault. I was rushing. When the police cars hit their sirens and rolling lights, Odinga crashed across a concrete median and slammed into a violent U-turn, racing west toward Shea Stadium. Detectives in an unmarked car and an emergency services truck gave chase, at one point sideswiping the Chrysler as Odinga struggled to retain control of the car. Sundiata rolled down his window and, producing a 9mm pistol, fired several shots. The police truck fell back. The Chrysler's tires blew out, forcing Odinga to veer into an adjoining warehouse district. I didn't know the area. It was stupid, a tactical error I made, Odinga recalls. That's how I ended up on a dead-end street. The two men jumped out of the car and ran into the rear yard of the Tully DiNapoli Construction Company, where they split up. Sundiata leaped atop a stack of sewer pipes to make it over a fence. Jumping down on the far side, he confronted a pair of detectives. In the ensuing exchange of gunfire, Sundiata was shot in the head and killed. Police poured into the area. A few minutes later, four of them glimpsed Odinga hiding under a van. As they approached, Odinga aimed a pistol at them and then dropped it. I give up, he said. After an underground journey that had taken him from New York to Cuba, Algeria, and as far afield as Angola, Sekou Odinga's odyssey was at an end. The NYPD, from all appearances, did not welcome his return. When he was escorted from 112th Precinct that evening, Odinga's body was covered with bruises and cigarette burns. Taken to the prison ward at Kings County Hospital, he was found to have sustained damage to his pancreas. Bit by bit, police managed to assemble a picture of the family. Kuasi Balagoon was arrested peacefully in January 1982. Sylvia Berraldini was arrested in November outside her Manhattan apartment. The rest would not be captured for years. Epilogue On a cool evening in November 2010, 200 people gathered at the Malcolm X and Dr. Betty Shabazz Center in Harlem for a memorial service celebrating the life of Marilyn Buck, who had died of cancer that summer, just a month after being released from federal prison. She had served 25 years. The audience was a who's who of the old underground movement. Weathers' Kathy Wilkerson sat in a rear corner beside her attorney, Elizabeth Fink. Beside them stood chiseled Ray Levasseur, looking fierce in a black-knit cap. Kathy Boudin stood alone at the back. A BLA attorney, Robert Boyle, wandered among the crowd, shaking hands. Up front sat a tall African-American man, Levasseur's old comrade, Kazi Torre. 
One after another, old friends rose to praise Buck as a poet, as a friend, as a comrade. Someone read aloud a letter from Sekou Odinga. Amazingly, in more than an hour, no one said the words bombing or bank robbery or murder once. Buck's attorney was the only one who even came close, joking about what Buck would have thought of the Chase Manhattan branch that sat on a street corner outside. A string of special guests was introduced. Linda Evans, the one-time weatherman who was arrested with Buck in 1985, jogged down the aisle, smiling and waving her hands, as did two of the FALN women, her friends from prison. After about an hour, Wilkerson and Fink rose to leave. This is just too much, Wilkerson muttered. This is ridiculous. This movement is dying and no one here seems to know it, Fink agreed. These people are just deluded. This is crazy. No one that evening was in the mood to provide an honest assessment of what, if anything, the 1970s era underground had achieved. But in terms of tangible successes, of hard-won political or moral victories, the short answer has to be not much. They had launched a kind of war on America, and they had lost. Talk to the underground's veterans today, many of them in their 60s, most mellowed, some not, and almost all are hard-pressed to point to any lasting impact the underground had on American society, short of metal detectors and bomb-sniffing dogs. While it drew the attention of law enforcement for more than a decade, the underground did little to force changes in the way America acted or was governed. Looking back across a chasm of 40 years, those who pursued armed struggle might best be compared to the German werewolf guerrillas who briefly attempted to resist Allied forces after the end of World War II, or to those Japanese infantrymen who emerged dazed from Pacific Island caves decades after the war's end, not realizing that the fighting had stopped years before. It was all a mistake, Sekou Odinga admits today. People weren't ready. People weren't ready for armed struggle. One of the things we now know, and should have known then, is we were way out in front of the people. A little more study would have made that clear. You can be a vanguard in the struggle, but you have to have the people behind you. And they weren't. Finance 